Listening Dog Media. The Hot Mess Mum. The mum most likely to send her kids to school in regular clothes on non-school uniform day. The mum who forgets to sign the permission slip for school trips. The mum who has probably put leftovers in her kids' lunchbox on more than one occasion. But most importantly, the Hot Mess Mum is actually rocking it and is doing a far better job than even she thinks. Please welcome our Hot Mess Mums, telling it as it is, Kelly and Cherie. It is the Hot Mess Mums Club podcast. I'm Kelly Pegg. And I'm Cherie Murphy. And um, we're really, really excited today because we have a very, very special guest, a lady that we're kind of pinching ourselves yeah. that she's actually here and come on. And I'm nervous, like really nervous about this because this lady is very, very inspirational and we're lucky to have her today. It is the lovely Maggie Oliver. Thank Hello. you so much for inviting me. It's oh, great for coming. to be here. No, I'm very flattered and very honoured to be here oh, with you. It's well, likewise, you. it's amazing to have you here. I don't know where to start with you. Really. <laughs> well, it's pretty. It's normally all doom and gloom, but there's a lot more to me as well as the, yeah. the, the grooming and the police. So hopefully I was a mum and a nana and a... Yeah. I like to travel and I've got friends and... Yeah. So, so much. Yeah. So when you get to my life. age, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do have to go, obviously, to where you first yeah. kind of came to everybody's attention, yeah. really, Maggie. Yeah. Um, and as a journalist myself, it's really special interviewing somebody like you. I remember watching you on Loose Women. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and thinking, wow, when all that kind of it came out. So you work for the police force. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody kind of knows who people, you are yeah. now and, and the story. Yeah. But a lot of bravery because you left to kind of come out with the truth really to make a difference to what was going on yeah and I was reading that uh, you knew by leaving and doing what you were going to do you could have actually ended up in prison yeah it was a and that that, I'm I'm not just saying that you know where I am now it's easy to forget where this started you know nobody had heard about grooming nobody knew about how the authorities were failing these kids and I spent 18 months as a serving police officer, when I found out for the second time that um, Greater Manchester Police were were not, I didn't feel doing a, a, a full and a thorough investigation that many kids were being failed and that many abusers were being left free to walk the streets. And initially, um, it, it's all, in, I've, you know, I've written a book now called mm. Survivors, yes. Maggie Oliver. So it's very difficult to leapfrog through everything in in just an interview and I think for people to really understand the journey you've Mm. got to read the whole lot but when I first saw for the second time um, that they weren't doing a proper job I thought initially it was just really one officer who was lazy who was blocking the investigation and um, it took a long time for me to speak out probably a couple of months to start to address it because I was loyal to colleagues and I didn't want to cause individuals a problem. But I had a conversation with one of the bosses who basically said to me that um, they understood that what I was saying, they agreed with what I was saying, but in the police, senior officers make decisions and as a detective, you do as you're told. And if you can't do that, perhaps you're in the wrong job. God, that's outrageous. <laughs> but... It was a light bulb moment. Mm. I'd had this struggle with my conscience. You know, do I do I keep quiet and not cause any colleagues, perhaps two colleagues, a problem? Or 
do I speak out and potentially cause a problem for them? Because I truly believed at that point that if the chief constable and the people really at the top knew what was going on, they would be as horrified as I was. Mm. Um, so I began a journey to talk about and, and say what was happening. And that took me to like the head of serious crime, the head of the public protection unit, to the chief constable, eventually to the IPCC, the children's commissioner, the home office. And everywhere I went, the door was slammed in my face. And But I knew that what I was saying was the truth. Yeah. I knew that the police were not recording dozens of probably thousands of rapes. They just were not recording them. So they didn't appear as unresolved rapes. They just didn't exist. So the men were not being created on databases. So if, if a man raped one of these children and we didn't record it, and then another child was attacked and abused further down the road, there would be no link to say that he'd done it, you know, 20, 30 times before. So... But at the end of that journey, um, I realised that I was... It really, really made me ill. You know, my last day at work, um, I was trying to carry on with my own job. I wasn't working on Operation Span, as it was called, anymore. Um, I was back in the major incident team, and I was just doing my normal routine. Um, I was actually photocopying. And one minute I'm photocopying, I turn around the next minute... I can't remember anything. And I woke up with like my colleagues around me. I was unconscious on the floor. Oh, um, And it was because I couldn't sleep. You know, when you wake up in the middle mm. of the night and you've got all these things going round and round in your head and none of it made any sense. You know, we had gangs of, of paedophiles abusing generations of kids. As a police officer, my job was to protect children my job was to prosecute rapists mm. so why were we not doing it and was i the why am i the only one shouting from the rooftops about this and i couldn't square the circle but something inside me i have a daughter who was about the same age as some of these kids and i kept coming back to the question if this was my daughter what would I do and what would I expect the police to do? Mm. And whichever way I looked at it, this was just wrong. So, you know, my my team who were fabulous, they took me straight to the doctor and um, I was signed off with um, work-related stress, severe stress. I couldn't go out the house for about a month. The whole world was spinning and I'm sat there on my own because obviously I'm, I'm a widow. I, you know, I had my youngest son living with me, but um, I just couldn't make any sense of it. And then I see the trial on the TV and Steve Haywood, who was one of the assistant chief constables, coming out and saying what a fantastic job it had been. And I know that it isn't. Um, and I'm angry, I'm upset. And, and I decided, you know what? I can't look myself in the mirror and allow this to just fade away. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision that I was going to speak out publicly. Um, but I knew... I'd been threatened in writing and verbally when I'd, I'd gone through the whole grievance procedure eventually right. to try and a, a lawyer advised me that unless I put in a formal grievance, um, this wouldn't be officially logged. So the grievance wasn't about me. It was to make sure that they couldn't turn around and say that I never spoke up, spoke up about it. Yeah. Um, and... And, and, and during that process, you know, in writing and verbally, I'd been, you know, wagging finger, you be very, very careful what you're doing. You're yeah. a police officer. And I'm thinking, 
yeah, I am a police officer and I promised to uphold the law. Yeah. You're not doing that. Yeah. But I think being an older woman and a very overdeveloped sense of right and wrong, I couldn't let it go. So it was, I knew that as a police officer, my card was marked. I don't think they could have sacked me because I'd done nothing wrong, but they would have put me in a in a dead-end job. You would have been made miserable. Yes, yeah. and I was working on on the biggest jobs that they had. I was a family liaison officer as well as a detective, and I loved what I did. Mm. Um, and I just made the decision that I am going to speak publicly. Um, and in 30 years' time, when all this hits the news, my kids will know that I spoke the truth. Mm. Was you there know? any point, Maggie, because sometimes when you're in a situation where you know you should speak out and you know that what's going on above you is wrong, but after you've had this finger wagged at you so many times, you just do your job as we tell you, don't go saying anything, don't go causing trouble, we'll deal with this. Do you ever sit there and uh, was there any point where you were like, am I imagining all this? Am I making this up? Am I going mad? All the time. I, In fact, you know, I, bear in mind I'm a widow. You know, I, my husband was two and a half years terminally ill with bowel cancer. Um, I saw him die. Um, my little granddaughter died just before she was three. And, you know, the hospital made serious mistakes. They they gave her air instead of oxygen. And, and overnight she went blind. She couldn't have a bottle. I have lived, I've been through the mill. Mm. And yet, I think... I know what life is. And bear in mind, I knew these kids. Mm-hmm. I knew what it had taken them to... I felt privileged that they had actually trusted me and told me what had happened to them. They'd shown me where they'd been abused. They'd taken me all around Rochdale and pointed out the premises where it had happened. You know, there was nothing they didn't talk about. And and then GMP changed the mind. Why do you think they did that? Do you, is it just because they were kids from, you know, backgrounds that, you know, from council estates, they just wrote them off completely? I do think, you honestly think that that is possibly why? that's a why? big part of it. I think it's a, a them and us mentality. You know, these kids, you know, they're from, you know, they're, they're from underprivileged backgrounds. Yeah. They don't make a fuss actually, um, by the time they realise they're being exploited and sexually abused, they're actually normally out of that process because the next the next string of victims has come the, along. Yeah, younger girls. Yeah, yeah, it's just like a conveyor belt. Yeah. And I think there is attitudes. I don't really think it's just to do with the grooming. I think there's attitudes in people, in many politicians, mm-hmm. that actually they're better than us. You know, they live in big posh houses they Mm. get big salaries they live in London they're out of touch with local communities Mm. and yet people within those communities are are often um, they were written off you know they're making a lifestyle choice they actually don't matter they're not coming to the police and reporting rapes so let's not lift let's not lift the lid on that let's just we know it's there but let's pretend it isn't and so when this job broke um, I mean it, it broke Primarily because GMP had um, a fetus, which one of the kids, one of the abusers had got one of the children pregnant at the age of just 13. You know, she had special needs um, from a a family that had already lost a son. Mum had had a nervous breakdown. um, And GMP had 
and social services actually had been when she had the termination they had waited there and seized the fetus um, without consent, without knowledge, illegally, unlawfully, and put it in the police property system. And then they did nothing about it um, for two years. And then they did a, a routine property review, found the fetus, and I was then approached to go and bring this girl on board to tell us what had happened. And another girl, who was uh, her sister actually, who was also being abused, they were They're in, in the, the drama. drama. Amber, Amber and, and Ruby. Ruby. That's yeah. yeah. So, and it wasn't that the authorities didn't know what had happened. The abuse had finished. I was directed to go and pursue this family mm. because they didn't want to speak to the police. So eventually, and to their everlasting credit, they agreed to tell me on behalf of the police what they'd been through and identify the men and the locations. And they spent seven months of continuous video interviews. I mean, you've got kids here. This is, you know, mums are listening to this. Mm. One of these kids had just had a baby. Every day I'd put the baby in the back of the car in a, in a car seat, drive to Bury Video Interview Suite with the, the girl, the, the, the survivor, victim, you know, who'd been abused, her mum in the back and the baby. You know, they. It, this isn't a five-minute interview. And seven months later, I'm told in a meeting that I wasn't even invited into, sorry, we've changed our mind. Well, no, you don't. No. You do not do that. The abuse has happened. Mm. It hasn't gone away. We've got a kid here who is going to tell us, hook, line and sinker, what has happened. And it isn't to help her. She's not being abused anymore. It's to stop these men from doing it to other kids. Yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't, whichever way I looked, I could not make that right. And if I didn't say anything, who was going to? And there was, I know when we, we mentioned the, the fact that because they were from underprivileged backgrounds, um, but there was also a kind of issue with the fact that these men, most of them were from Pakistani descent. Yeah. And there was this thing about not wanting uh, so many amount yeah. of offenders yeah. from that minority um, on the books, shall we say, yeah. a fear of maybe that it looked racist or, or whatever their issue yeah. the police was, they were ignoring it partly due to that as well, Def which definitely. is horrendous. I mean, and ridiculous, you know. Yeah, I mean, for, I am not racist. I am not prejudiced. But for me, I joined the police to uphold the law. And if a man rapes a child, it doesn't matter whether he's green, yellow, white, blue or whatever. Mm. He is a rapist yeah. and the law is there to protect the children. So for me, the fact and the vast majority of the men within the grooming gangs were Pakistani men. And, you know, I'm starting a, my own foundation. And part of it is to try and understand um, why why that is you know why are we not addressing it i mean there definitely was an element of um they didn't the authorities didn't want to be accused of being islamophobic the first job i worked on was in 2005 and i, I say in my book that that was a full thorough running job identical to operation span um identical same um same ab abusers really the same victim profile same mo um and gmp dropped that well i found out years after that that the last entry on the database for operation augusta was the night of the 6th of july 2005 the morning of the 7th was the london bombing now that is not a coincidence because the, it's not just that 
the job was was closed down, it stopped dead at that point. And whilst I would have understood had they um, had they like put a break on it for a few weeks and delayed for the the initial outcry to die down, I would never accept that they'd buried it. So I went to Operation Span already with all this baggage, and I've made a big. Um, to do about it and I'm led to believe that they're reopening Operation Augusta so that to me is proof that I have made this up you know I've Mm -hmm. been very careful what I've said because I can back up every single thing I say so my only way of protecting myself if they did choose to arrest me and try to prosecute me because Mm -hmm. I was speaking out of turn or disclosing things under data protection the first thing I did I made sure that the the families and the kids were right on board with me and wanted me to start talking about it and to this day you know they can they've done everything they can to help expose this scandal Mm. and the second thing I did I um, made sure that I can. I've got as much paperwork as I can to back up what I'm saying. More than that, I, I, there was nothing else I could do. Once I'd made the decision, I, you know, I spoke to my kids and I said, "There are some things in life that are scary, you know, and and not easy to do, um, but some things you have to do." Mm. And that, that was. This has just been one of those things. I sometimes think maybe that's why I joined the police mm. because you have it was meant to it happened for a reason yeah. and you know because you joined the police quite later on in life didn't 41. you 41 yeah so <laughs> you know to, to change four children yeah, yeah. so to change mom. careers yeah. you know or, or to start deal. a new career it is a big deal but I always I'm a great believer of things happen for a reason yeah and that is why you chose to do that because of what has been exposed yeah what was the backlash from your colleagues, or was there a backlash? You know what? Or was no. people supportive? Were they supportive? Yeah, my, and to this day are. That's amazing. And when I go to retirement dues, I mean, morale within the police is absolutely rock bottom. And it's, I've never said, I'm not calling individual police officers. Mm. Police officers join to make a difference on the whole. And yeah, you get good and bad in every job, don't you? Yes. Um, but but when it's bad from the top. But it's the top. That's the problem because it filters yes, down, it does. doesn't it? And if, if the people at the top are saying, this is all right, don't do anything about mm. it. You know, people at the bottom, like me, who really want to do it, are fighting a battle that I fought. Not everybody's going to walk away from the job. Yeah. You know, I did lose my home. I thought I was going round the bend. Mm. The chief constable said, you know, uh, when I first spoke out publicly he went on um uh, on woman's hour the day after and basically said i was a woman who had become too emotionally involved oh i hate yeah. why do they always say that about women yeah. and call it emotional yeah. and i'd lost the plot you know oh. be, i was bereaved oh. well you know what you picked on the wrong one mm. yes you really yeah. did because that fired me up even more how dare you mm. when you know the truth mm. and you're trying to shoot the messenger address the issues you know, do something about it. And I think that, you know, it made my blood boil. Mm. Um, and it still does. You know, I've met Margaret many times. No, you haven't. You've never met me to this day. So God help you if you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an invitation, Peter. Yeah. 
<laughs> come and have a go. Yeah. <laughs> come and sit here. Yes. The three of us. We'll see Absolutely. who gets emotional first. Yeah, I've heard him say, you know, I'm a very devout Christian and I've got three daughters of my own. So why wouldn't you want to protect these children yes. that are being abused? 100%. Why would you not do yeah. that? When, when you get in those positions of power and authority, you can make a difference. Yes, of course. You, know, you should want to. And you should want to. Yeah. But I think within the police... Everybody starts wanting to make a difference. But I think the further up the ranks you go, they're testing you as to whether you're going to put your individual conscience above of what's best for the organisation. That That's the conclusion that I have come to. And it's frightening. And there's no accountability. People who knowingly have, have allowed generations of kids throughout the whole country to have their lives destroyed mm. should be held accountable. Mm. Yes, and they're not. They get a pension, they walk out the door, and that's it. They're home and dry. Just forget about it. Yeah. Forget about the damage you've done and the lives you've destroyed. You know, you've got a responsibility, and it's an honour to be able to make a difference to people's lives. Yeah. And if you don't, they never really recover. Let's talk about the foundation, because it is yeah. incredible what, what you're setting Oof. up. And she was saying earlier how much she loved the idea that you'd said, I want one in every town, I, I want one all across the country. Yeah. You're going to start in Rochdale, um, yeah. and it's going to be a sort of centre to support women and girls that have been victims of abuse. Yeah, that's... Um, th- I think my book, writing the book in a way, has allowed me to a little bit let go of what has been. Because anybody who really wants to know what's happened can read my book now. Mm. Um, and But all the learning I've got, um, not really just about the failures of the police on Operation Span and Augusta, but what I've learned in the journey since I left, that is an eye-opener. Mm. And, you know, even when you get a key witness in a trial who a whole trial is built around, they walk out of the door at the end of that trial and there is nothing. You know, they don't have... I, I mean, I can tell you lots of stories, but, w- you know, one girl who gave evidence in one of the trials, you know, she helped the police, bent over backwards, put herself through hours and hours of interviews... The police never prosecuted any men for abusing her. They used her as a witness in relation to abuse of another girl. The the gang found out that she was a witness. They attacked her in her own home. They destroyed her home. She was moved out and left homeless. They they set fire. So there's no protection for her. No protection. And and actually, at that point, the police would not even hold a hand and help her find alternative accommodation. She ended up in a hostel for two years. They have pursued her. She's been sectioned. She's been arrested and charged with racially aggravated public order because she addressed, she called one of the abusers in the street a, a racially aggravating name. Yeah. Nothing <coughs> happened to him. So all those kind of things. I'm working with Harriet Wistrich, who's a human rights lawyer. There's lots of things going on in the background. They're the kind of things that I want to share my learning, actually. So if somebody walks in at the moment, I can't do it all on my own. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning all this. I see myself as the, the voice of the foundation to get out there, to spread the message. I help the girls or I support the girls that I know, but I can't do that for everybody. My value is in spreading the word. So people who, who've got a business, who want to s- support a really worthwhile charity, I'm not making a penny from this. No. You know, this, but I can't, I haven't got the money to do it. But there are many people who can get involved in many ways. So we will be looking for volunteers. I'm in the process of trying to find a physical premises, a, the right place for the 
for the survivors to go. I want it to be an open door. They don't have to come in and spill the soul about the abuse. I want them to come in and feel part of something. So whether they've been, you know, a survivor of grooming and abuse or whether it's a Pakistani woman who's been forced into an arranged marriage and doesn't know where to turn because within the community there isn't Mm. anywhere for them to go safely. They are very um, controlled and frightened a lot of the time. A, a girl who's been subjected to FGM, where does she go? So, you know, I'm trying to make it a go-to centre where we attract um, experts. So if this is a psychotherapist who specialises in trauma, this isn't often just about counselling. Some of them have got such deep scars that it's trauma and they need specialist help. Somebody else might want to go and, and, and meet other people who've been in the same position and feel that they have got a safe place to go. And when the, the time's right, I see it as a gateway to services. The services won't just be in the centre. We'll be doing like, I don't know, maybe mindfulness and lifestyle classes. And I, I see it as a, having a little crash for kids girls who come who have got kids and no support um, maybe at Christmas take them to the circus and maybe things that the, or take the kids to a farm I want it to be a, a, a warm place mm. because all I've done for, for the girls I support in many ways is listen to them and made them feel safe and believed yeah that's so not important. judged yeah you know um and 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 then help them pick up the pieces of their life. I mean, the the line underneath it is transforming pain into power. And we've all had pain. I I mean, I've had pain. I've lost my husband. You know, he was 46 when he was diagnosed terminal. I know what I know what pain is. Mm. My little granddaughter, you know, she was just not quite three. Um, you know, my son and my daughter can't have any more children. You can allow something like that to destroy you. And, and actually, it's, there's no right or wrong. But I think if you get support from people who will hold your hand, um, you've got a chance of picking up the pieces. And at the moment, th- there isn't that help. Even legal advice, if, if the kids want to seek compensation for having been failed, you know, they don't know where to go. Mm. I've taken them to solicitors. And, you know, the first step is often the hardest. So... I've got this vision of having a centre in every town. I can't do it on my own. Should there be a grant? There should like be. A government grant. I think there right. is. I mean, I'm just at the start of this process, Sherry. Um, there is public funding available. Mm. Um, that's. I'm at the start of that process. And I'm hoping that, that the government will step forward yeah. and that people who have got the ex- the right expertise and the right... Um, desire to help. Mm. It's more about wanting to help. Mm. Um, we need every, and they know, should everybody. help because it's the next generation of our world yeah. that are you know in a bad way or being you know going through yeah. horrific things. That our government should take a stand and look out, look out for these 100%. people. You know, not everybody's in certain more. positions. Yeah, they need to do more. Yeah. Well, they but could save them. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're talking about. Money in the long run, because if you if you help, say, a nineteen year old kid start to put the pieces of their life together they might have missed school maybe you can get them to go into some form of education mm. give them a future give them an idea that things can get better mm. you know you're heading off problems in the future if the help and the support is there i i listened to uh, professor tanya byron she came to my foundation launch and was 
mind-blowing. But she explained um, sexual abuse and trauma in a, a very scientific way, But um, and it's way beyond my... <laughs> yeah. But she explained it that... You know, often counselling will not address really deep-seated trauma. You need um, somebody who really knows how to address the triggers in your mind. Yeah. Mm. So, and it's like somebody who's been in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, they come back and you, they might wake up in the night trying to strangle the wife, and it's not, it's not a conscious decision. No, it's, it's the after effects it, it of is. everything that's, so, that yeah. stay with you forever. Hundred percent. But if you deal with that, there is a window of opportunity up to the age of seven. Yeah. But then. Um, Tanya said that in the teenage years there is another window of opportunity so if that is is seized in the long term you can prevent, mm. for me it's about preventing mm. the, preventing damage and, and I include the police in that, social services, CPS yeah. the criminal justice system get your act together, address the problems, send a clear message out that we're not going to accept this and then you will stop it um, escalating any further. If if an abuser who's never started knows they are going to be dealt with, it would prevent them. Yeah, yeah. It would, it's it, definitely. Oh, they'd surely think twice about it. They would think it. twice. Yeah. At the moment, the message that ha- maybe it's it's changing, and if I'm proud of anything, it is that I think I've been part of that journey. Absolutely. Um, you know, working on three girls for four years, there is nobody, I don't think, in this country who doesn't understand grooming now. Yeah. That, I mean, you that, know, was, that is a big... It, it's education, yes, yeah. it's knowledge, it's informing people who didn't even know it existed. So that is where we now have a different country because the authorities are less able to turn a blind eye. Mm. And that's where everybody needs to stand up. Um, you know, a, a mum that's listening to this today, if she sees something at school and sees somebody, a taxi pulling up or somebody pulling up who you think, mm, that doesn't look quite right, do something yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, believe in in your instincts, follow your instincts. And, you know, if you've got it wrong... Well, it doesn't really matter. You know, you've made a mistake. But if you've got it right and you don't do anything, then you potentially are allowing damage that you will never be able to undo again. You know, believe in yourself and probably use your voice. Yeah. You know, dig deep. The Hot Mess Mums with Kelly and Cherie. Right, that is part one of the Hot Mess Mums Club podcast with the amazing Maggie Oliver. Part two will drop next week, next Friday. Do not miss it.